How are we doing tonight? We awake? We live? Good. I heard a great there. That was pretty good. Awesome. Well, I am excited because it's always exciting to be in the Lord's house. You know, we do this each week, but it's always awesome. It's just a great time to be with fellow believers. And I love this past week as well because we got to hear, hear missionaries. We got to witness firsthand God's work around the world. And what's also cool is we got to see God work right here at Trinity. And what's encouraging is that God is here and his hand is moving at Trinity. It seems some great things happen. We had a, a salvation with a young man. We had um, baptisms not too long ago. We had some decisions in the youth. We had a bonfire afterwards and some of them surrendered to the Lord for, for full-time ministry or whatever he would lead. And it's just awesome because the Lord is working. And and people have been called, people have surrendered, people have been, been inspired, people have been encouraged, people have been strengthened. And it's, it's great that we get to live a life for a great God. And it's an encouragement. But what, what I've seen also, as people continue to grow, as, as the Lord continues to work as he does, and so mightily, that there's an enemy who is seeking whom he may devour. And when he sees progress happening, his goal is to make that progress stop. His goal is to try to squash you at every turn. His goal is to try to stop that momentum that's going on. And we don't have to be scared because that's not to strike fear in you. We have a greater God than, than the enemy. But what's interesting is that as momentum happens, we can sometimes find ourselves not moving or, or succumbing to some of these temptations. And what we see in David is we've talked a lot about David. And we've talked a lot about how David was, was growing. He was living for the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. But right now, at this point, what we're going to focus on is it seems David's momentum has stopped. He's a man after God's own heart. And, and that made him a target for the, for the enemy, for Satan. He says, that's the man after God's own heart. Let's see how we can make him crumble. And tonight, I want us to focus a little bit on his, his downfall. We're not going to just stay in something that seems kind of depressing. We're going to move in and see God's faithfulness amid that downfall. So go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. And as I already mentioned, we've, we've seen David. We've seen that he's defeated Goliath, that he's stayed faithful in the highs and lows of life. He refused to kill Saul. He had respect for Saul. He had obedience to God's command. Uh, we see that he had some eventual humility in dealing with Abigail and Nabal. And believe it or not, once again, we come to David, and David's at another fork of the road, another decision he has to make. And sometimes that can seem tiresome. It's like, I just got past the five decisions I had to do the right thing. Now I'm back at another one. And he actually, when he has these two decisions before him, he makes the wrong one. And where we actually pick up in chapter 27 is we find David in a pit of misery and despair. And it seems like he's stuck there. So before we get into that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been stuck somewhere? That's a weird question. All right, have you ever been stuck somewhere? Like, give me, give me that next slide. Okay, we got traffic. Okay, pretty, pretty easy. Ever been stuck in traffic? Raise your hand if you've been stuck in traffic. All right, that's pretty much everyone. It's not fun. Okay, it's not an enjoyable experience. It's not like you're leaving work. You're like, man, I really hope I get stuck on traffic on the way home. Right? All right, here with that next one. I don't know if you've ever done this. Okay, I like that was the strongest temptation when I was a kid. Even, even now sometimes. Like you just, it's just like I could fit my head in there. I could do it, and then you do it, and then you can't get out. Okay, and I don't know. Sometimes this may have may not have happened, but my mom had it happen one time to some kid, uh, and I remember we got butter, and it kind of helped, like, loosen it up, and then it, like, slipped through, so that did happen. Um, here with that next one. Okay, we got Santa, okay, stuck in a chimney. Okay, think about it. Like, it doesn't seem physically possible to have Santa stuck in a chimney, or to have Santa go down the chimney, and I think I got one more up there. Okay, quicksand, okay? 
I, when I was a kid, I, you might have seen, there's, there's some things around social media about this, but I thought quicksand was a really big deal when I was a kid. And I thought I was going to encounter it, and I like knew how to get out of quicksand. I, read, read, I actually read books on how to get out of quicksand, because like, what if this comes up in my life, and I get stuck in quicksand, and i got to get out? Never come up. I don't even know where quicksand's at. But if it does, come see me after. I know how to get out of it, okay? But I remember that, especially when I was younger, or even in, in middle school, I remember there was this one time, I just had this natural desire to get, get stuck in things. And I remember I was trying to impress my friends. This is a really foolish way to impress your friends. But there's these, the, kind of like the chairs in the youth room. There's this little slot in between, like the top of the chair and the, the bottom of the chair. And you can like try to fit someone through there. And I, I was real skinny at that time. And I was like, man, I bet I could try to fit through that chair. And I remember I, I tried my hardest to get into that chair. And I got like halfway through. And I'm, and I'm, I'm literally talking about like a little, little hole that's in the chair. It was a little bit bigger, and I was trying to go through it. And I was like, man, this will impress my friends. It did not. They just thought I was weird because I was a middle school boy trying to go through a chair. But I remember I got stuck in it, and it was a long process. Like they had to stop. I did it in the middle of class, which wasn't a good idea. So the teacher's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going through a chair, obviously. And I didn't work. I was stuck there. They had to like unscrew the chair and get it off. It was a very long, arduous process. But... My point there is that we've all been stuck somewhere. And to make it a little more serious, there's, there's a book called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I don't know if you ever heard of it before. It's a great book. And the, the story, to kind of sum it up very, very briefly, is that there's a pilgrim named Christian. He's on this journey to m- remove his load. Okay? It's all an allegory about the gospel. It's about he has this load of sin, but then he gets to the cross eventually and it takes the burden off. But as he's on this journey, he falls into what John Bunyan calls the slough of despond, or the slough of despond. And what it was is this giant pit. And with that next slide, I think I have it up there. It was this, this oh, hey, I have one more. There's this kid stuck in a, in a claw machine. All right, now that we've got that, all right, hit with the next one. Thank you, Kevin. You're awesome. Okay, all right, now we're going back to Pilgrim's Progress. All right, so we have John, uh, this, this pilgrim, this Christian, who is stuck in this, this slough of despond, this giant pit. And, and what it's showing is that he seems like he's trapped by his sin and his guilt and his despair. And as he gets into the pit, he begins to sink more and more and more. What that shows is that's exactly where David is right now. He is a man in deep discouragement, even deep depression, and he feels like he's stuck. And the last thing he does when he's stuck, the first thing you should do is call upon God, but that's the last thing we're going to see him do. He tries to get out, and the more he tries to get out by his own power, the deeper and deeper he sinks in into deeper discouragement, deeper despair. We've all been there. This is a metaphor, but we've all been in, in places where we just feel really sad, we feel really discouraged. We, we've departed from God and we feel like we're going our own way. We, we feel like we can't continue on. We feel like the only way to continue on is to go my own way. What's amazing about this is there's a way to get out of the pit of misery. We can find escape from the pits of despair by examining four stages of David's life in 1 Samuel 27 through 30. So we're going to cover, cover a few chapters and get some overview of it. But I want us to see these different stages of David's life, which is actually very close, uh, pretty accurate to how humans often follow these stages as well. So let's look at the first one. Stage number one, the depressing circumstances. And we'll see this in verse one. So let's make sure we got the context that's happening. Okay, what happened in in 26 is once again, Saul comes up to David and uh, he's... Oh, actually, before that, we have David coming up to Saul, and David once again spares Saul's life. 
And remember, we had a whole sermon about how David did that, and then he did it again. And Saul was very close to dying. David could have taken it, taken his life very easily. So easy to kill, so easy to end it. Yet David respects Saul's position and obeys God's timing. And then we see in 1 Samuel 26, 21, Saul makes a promise. He talks to David again. This is right after Saul's life has been spared. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul is precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. What, what he's saying is, David, I'm not going to come after you anymore. This was the last time. I know I've said that before, but this is the last time. What he's doing is he's lying, and David is no fool. David knows this is happening, and Saul wants to kill him. And David, at this point in his life, is just tired. He's tired physically. He has to keep going. He never has safety. He doesn't have a home he can go to at the end of the day. He always has to find somewhere new, somewhere safe. And then emotionally he's hurting because he keeps getting betrayed by his, his father-in-law. His friends are gone. He has two wives that are with him, so that, that's good. But that hurts him socially as well because now he's trying to lead these two wives and 600 men and knowing no idea where the future holds, no, knowing no idea what the next day holds. And then spiritually, he, he's asked himself, God, you keep allowing these things to happen. And he has this natural question, why? Now, David knows God is real. David knows God has made promises. But there's a question lurking in David's mind of, does God really care? And do I have to follow him still? Do I have to go his way? And we see a very clear status of where David is in verse 1. Let's look at it together. Verse 1, and David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me, seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. What you see is this reveals, and the more we get into it, we see it that it reveals a man who's experiencing hopelessness and emptiness. He feels like he's been back to a corner and that he only has one choice. He's looking at his circumstances and they seem Hopeless, And what that starts to do is he begins to think incorrectly. Begins to not think biblically, but begins to not think of a man after God's own heart. He begins to talk to himself. And what we see, number one, is how David's thinking. He first thinks like a humanist. And what does that mean? Well, a humanist is someone who's focused not on the divine, but is focused on themselves. Focused on humanity, but more so on themselves. What's good for them. And look, it says it right here. And David said in his heart... He's not having a conversation with God at this point. He's talking to himself. He's leaning on his own understanding. He's not talking sense to himself either. No, he's saying, this is the only way that I can think in my own finite mind that we can get through this. We'll actually see in this, this chapter and the next and the one to follow as well, is that David never once prays. He never once talks to God. There's no psalms or songs that he wrote in this point. There's no counsel he sought. The only person he was focused on talking to was himself. And when you trust yourself as the source, things start to fall apart. I'm not saying it's, it's bad to talk to yourself. You can ask my wife. I probably talk to myself all the time. But it's not bad to think through things. But what was happening is David left God out of the conversation. In fact, he should, have been, God should, have, he should have let God been the one guiding it. But now David is saying, God... Distance yourself from me. This is, I got this. Let me figure this out. Let me find my own plan. And we see that he thinks like a humanist. He's thinking about himself. And then number two, as the passage says, David is thinking like a pessimist. 
He says, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. And, and there's this, it's really been this long hide-and-seek game that David's been playing. Like, hide-and-seek's supposed to be fun. It wasn't fun at this point anymore. It was just like, I hide, and Saul finds me, and I say, Saul, don't kill me. Then I go hide, and then I find Saul, and I don't kill him, and he says, thank you. And then we just compete this whole thing over and over and over again. And he's saying, I don't think I can make it. He's saying, defeat is near. He's kind of like doing like an Eeyore-type thing of, oh, bother, why, why even try? Why even move forward? What we see, the problem in David's statement is two things. First, there is no trust in Yahweh. He's not focused on the God who's provided for him time and time again. But what's also wrong is David's thinking doesn't make sense. He says, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. David, you're wrong. David, you've been promised the kingdom multiple times. Let, let, me, let me show you how much he's been promised. Samuel came up to him in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Says, hey, David, you're going to have this kingdom. You've been anointed by God. Jonathan comes up two separate times. Says, David, you're going to have this kingdom. Saul himself comes up two separate times. And says, David, you're going to have this kingdom. Abigail, his, his wife that he just got from after we all the whole story Pastor Corey gave, he, Abigail comes and promises, hey, David, you will have this kingdom. And what it's showing is it's not just these finite people making the promises. It's saying God made a promise and said, David, you're going to get that kingdom. But David wasn't believing. He wasn't trusting. He was being pessimistic. He said, there's no way out. I know you promised it, but your promise is going to fall apart. There is no way out. And Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. He saw the opportunity for a kingdom, for the kingdom that he was going to run. He said that it was difficult and it was hard. And he's like, I can't do it. But he never once turned to the one in control. And I, I want to keep saying that. I know I've said that a few times, that he's not talking to God. But that's where the problem lies. He keeps not talking to the one in charge, the creator, the one who is the sustainer, the one who is sovereign, and he's relying on his own understanding. And that's what's going to get him into this mess. Yes, did he have depressing circumstances? 100%. But he didn't focus on the one that could get him out of those depressing circumstances. He focused on himself. And what that led to, he used these depressing circumstances to justify the next stage, stage number two. We see a departure from God's plan. We see at the end of verse 1. It says, there is, there is nothing better for me than, I should, than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me, seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. He's saying here, he says, I have nothing better to do. I only have one option. The only option is I'm going to go into Philistine land. And my goal is to get Saul to, to stop going after me, to stop this hunt. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into enemy territory. And this is like a basic human thing that what David's doing here. He's trying to rationalize himself. He's trying to say, no, this is the only real option. I know as a kid I would do this all the time. If, if my mom was like super tired or if we uh, didn't have any food and she had to go to the grocery store, I'd say, well, there's only one option. We gotta go get fast food. Like, there's, there's no other way to do it. It's like, there's a lot of ways to do it. We could heat up something at home. We had stuff at home, but I was like, Mom, there's only one option. We can only go get McDonald's because I don't want you to have to work hard. I don't want you to have to do it. I try to rationalize myself out of this. Say, no, we can get fast food. It's easier. It's, it's the only option, Mom, so we have to do it. And that's what David's saying. There's, there's only one option, God. No, not even that. He's talking to himself. He's not talking to God. He's saying, there's only one option. 
I gotta go to the Philistine land. That's the only way in my finite mind that I can get through this. It's the only way left. And what he's saying is the only way left is my way. That whole trust in God thing, it didn't work. But actually it did. And it did for David so many times when he faced Goliath, when, when he was put against these obstacles. It's God who got him through, but he's looking more to his current circumstances than to his God. And we see in verses 2 through 3, he takes 600 men and he takes his two wives and they go to the kingdom of Gath. They go to Achish. They go to Philistine territory and specifically Gath. Now, as you hear the word Gath, that should ring a bell in your mind. That's the hometown of a champion. That's the hometown of Goliath. He's going back to where Goliath used to be. And the people knew David, too. They knew the giant killer. And he's also going to the arch enemy of Israel. Like, this is Philistine. This is Gath. They hate the Israelites. But he goes there, and he goes to the king. And what we should do is, as we're thinking through this, we should ask ourselves some questions. You say, okay, well, why, why is it a problem to go to Philistia? Why, why is it bad to go to the Philistine country? I, I, I came up with two reasons. There's, I'm sure there's more. Is that first, once again, he didn't consult God about this. He just made his own decision. And also, he's going to a place that is, that is pagan, that is against Israel, that is against God's people. He's going right into the midst of it, smack dab into the middle. And then another question I ask is, well, we see that King Achish, as we continue reading, accepts David in. He goes to the king of the Philistines, the king of Gath, and he says, king, let me come into your country. And Achish says, all right, come on in. I'm like, why? This is the giant killer. Why would you let David come in? But what, what Achish, Achish is thinking a few steps ahead. He's thinking, hey, this is really good for me because there's this rift in Israel. There's this rift between Saul and David. And what that does is it leaves Israel vulnerable. So I can kind of come back at Israel. And he's also thinking, if David comes, and if I, this is King Achash thinking, if David comes, I can convince David to go and attack the Israelites. And if he goes and attacks the Israelites, then his people aren't going to want him back. So then I'm, David's stuck with me. So this is actually good. And he's thinking, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He says, sure, David, you, you come on in. Verse 4, we see that this plan that David has seems to work. It says in verse 4 that Saul stops chasing him. Saul sees David going to Gath. Saul says, oh, I'm not going in there. I'm not dealing with that. I'll get him later on. And, and look with me at verse 5 as we continue on in this narrative. And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? And then Achish gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. What happens is David comes up and he says, O king, he, this is very interesting. He's talking to his arch enemy here. He says, O king, can you go give me some land? What we see in verse 6 is Achish says, Okay, I'll give you Ziklag. That's kind of on the outskirts of, of Philistine, of Philistia. You go and you can take that. And this is actually a very normal thing for servants to come up and ask the kings for land. But that should stop us in our tracks. We're like, but David's not a servant to the king of Gath. He's David. He's the king of Israel. He's the one that's been anointed to be king. He's, he's God's chosen man for this chosen job. But David's going completely wayward. And he's becoming a servant to the king of Hestia. He's becoming a servant to the king of Gath. What we see in verse 5 is he calls himself, Why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? He's talking about himself. He's saying, King, I am your servant. What he's done here, he's submitted to the wrong authority. 
What we see is he's actually more respectable to a pagan king than he has been to a holy God at this moment. He hasn't talked to the holy God at all. But he says, I'll do what I need to do to connive my way into King Akesh's life so that I can be safe. So that my plan, my plan, not God's plan, my plan can work. Then we look at verse 7. It says, at that time David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. So he's in there for a while. And when you're you're there for, for a year and four months, you start to build relationships there. You start to have an identity there. When you're there for a long time, things start, you start to get to know people. You start to have your identity tied to it. Why is this so bad? Why why is all this so bad? What David is doing is he's compromising his identity. He's compromising his faith. He's compromising his responsibility. He is 100% departing from God's plan. He's saying, my life wasn't going the way I anticipated. Now I'm abandoning God. And I'm going my own way. You know, this isn't like super unfamiliar. I, I see this happen all the time. I see this happen in, in our, our day-to-day life even. There's this, it's kind of a trendy word. I'm sure you've heard of it before. But I, I think it's applicable. Is There's this trendy word called deconstructionist. Well, what that is, very simple terms, is a person says, I'm deconstructing. And it's a very trendy thing. It's like the cool thing to do, which is sad. But... It's that someone who grew up in the Christian faith, what they now do is they go wayward and they take their faith and they say, I'm going to deconstruct it because I don't really believe about that part. I don't believe about that part. I just kind of regurgitated my parents' ideas. Now I'm going my own way. And kind of what they'll say for these deconstructions, their surface level definition is that I'm analyzing my faith and shifting through the good and bad. But the more I, I look into deconstructionists, because on the outside, they're saying all these good reasons. They're like, this is why I'm leaving the Christian faith. This is why I'm not doing it. And, and what actually I really think is happening is the real definition. They're saying I'm leaving God because he didn't deliver the way I wanted him to. And now I like my own way better. And I'm going after what I want. It's a new term. It's the same habit that people have been doing for centuries. They say, Lord, you made promises, but I don't like your way. So I'm going my way. This is not new. What David's doing is not new. It's happened throughout all of Scripture, and I've seen it happen all over. And it's one of the things that like, just hurts my heart. I'm like, I, I know people that did that. Like people, I grew up in a Christian school, and like it would be foolish to think that everyone who goes to a Christian school is automatically saved because they go there. Sometimes you think that, though. But people I graduated with, people I was friends with, I'm like I see their, their Facebook, I, I, I contact them, I, I check up on them, I'm like, Man, where are you going? You're, you, you knew the right things. I know you did because you were in the Bible class with me saying the right things. But they never believed it. And they, they moved away. There's people I went to college with at Bob Jones. And I'm like, surely all of us here are saved. We're at a Bible college. No, not quite. People going off, going somewhere else that's not near God. Seeing it happen with teens. It's going to happen with adults. And it's just like, oh, why? There, there, there's even famous people have done it. There's, there's um, Joshua Harris who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He's, he's way off on left field now. Uh, there, there's, there's a few others. But what, what I'm saying is, is that there's people who came in and they, they grew up in the church. Or they even saw the church at a, even a younger age, an older age. And they filled a role. And they sang the songs. And they were baptized. And they smiled and did all the right things. But then you see that they begin to move away from the things of God. 
And what actually happens is what happened to David right here is that they faced hardship, they saw the hardship come, and instead of turning to God, they blamed God, said, God, you're not doing it the way I want you to do it. Now I'm going to move away from you. And then you see that they start to indulge in different behaviors, and then they start to feed their flesh. And as they feed their flesh, they begin to rationalize that I'm not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. You're like, that's what they've been saying since, the, since kindergarten. Like, everyone else is doing it. Yeah, people don't change a lot. Right? They say, everyone else is doing it, and then they begin to leave the faith. And what, what kind of bogs me down a little bit, when I see that happen to people I was with, and I was with in like discipleship groups, I was with in college, and we had conversations, and they were telling me about their testimony. I'm like, the question I'm left with is a valid question. Are they saved? You know, I, I can't tell if anyone's saved. That's, that's not my, my authority. But I do know some truths from Scripture. Matthew 7, 15 through 20 talks about we, we know them by their fruits. And then there's also a truth, too. John 10, 28 through 29 is that I know no one can ever leave God's hand. That no one ever can lose their salvation. So if they truly believe, they're never losing their salvation. No one can pluck, God, pluck us from God's hand. And then I also see that Christians mess up. So I'm thinking of all this, and I'm like... I don't have a blanket statement to say that everyone who leaves the faith is automatically unsaved. But what I do know is that Christians can be led astray. And I believe that there's, there's different categories, I guess you want to say. There's people who grew up the church, they just played the part, and they were never saved to begin with. And they've gone wayward because they were never there to begin with. And they just acted, which happens so frequently. But there's also... People who, who truly have been saved have believed and called upon the name of Christ, but now they seem like they're going wayward. We actually see this with David, and although it's in Old Testament for sure, and Christ hasn't come onto the scene yet, but we see that, at least, at least visibly, but we see that David is doing the same thing. He's a man who believed in God, who trusted in the promises of God, but now he's going wayward. And I get it, you know, and a little bit. No, hold on, stay with me, but I get it. Because what happens is, I was reading a book that was talking about this, is that when people go and leave the faith, or they go and indulge in their sin, they're like, man, the pressure just releases. I always feel like I had to, had to follow these rules and these expectations, and it feels really nice for a moment. But then you realize you're lost. You realize that nothing's fulfilling. You realize what did fulfill, you've left. And what you realize that's close is destruction. Destruction looms. And that brings us to the next stage. The destruction of Stability. All right, let's do an illustration. Let's make sure we're awake. All right, I'm going to take Aaron, Luke, and Logan for me. Come on up. And then Isaac, you can come on up too, buddy. All right, so what we're going to do is I'll have Mr. Logan, you stand right here for me, okay? And then just stick your hand out like this, okay? All right, this is Logan. This is Logan's life, okay? All right, you have a great life. It's great, okay? You got it? All right. Yeah, you can grab it for right now. You're good, okay? And boys, what I want you to do is you're just going to come around Logan's life. You're just going to grab onto it, okay? Go ahead. <laughs> He's like, I'll take his life. All right, here, let me see his life, okay? Let me see Logan's life. All right, okay, you're going to hold on to it like this, okay? We're not trying to kill Logan. That, okay, all right, go ahead and grab it, okay? Good, good, perfect. All right, and Logan, open up your, hand, your palm just like that, okay? All right, see what this is illustrating is that Logan has his life right here, Okay? And it's kind of this, this balancing act. There's things he has to do. He tries to keep it all stable. You know what makes it really easy to make it all stable? Is when you have people that give some stability to it. You have people that are your family. You have people that are your friends. You have people that are your church. You have, you have people that are with you. You have things that are with you. You have support. Okay? 
That's what's happening. And then when, when the wind comes, when the hard times come and it shakes, right? It doesn't fall. It stays there, okay? Now, say that stability starts getting taken away. All right, you let go for me. And then you let go. And then you let go, okay? Now what's happening, it's like, okay, he's got it. He's trying to balance it. He's trying to hold it all together. He's like, okay, I've lost my stability. I've lost the things that are holding me. I'll, I'll try to balance it. I'll try to, try to hold my life together. I've, I've lost the things that were helping me to do this, but I got it. But then as soon as one bad thing happens, it just falls. He's like, I got it, I got it. See, beautiful. That was pretty good, though. You last longer than I thought. All right? Okay, you guys sit down. You're awesome. Okay, my point in saying that, like, what did that mean? My point is, is that Logan was trying to balance it all, and what made it really easy is that he had people and stability that was holding on. He wasn't just doing it by himself. Well, what's happened to David is that now he's gone his own way, and what God does to punish, punish in some ways, to discipline probably a better word, is that he comes and says, I'm going to take away some of the stability you have. Because I want you to see that you can't do life by yourself, and you can try to balance as much as you can, even then you can't do it. But then as soon as one little thing comes, one little hard part comes and knocks you over, everything collapses. And that's what's happening to David. He thought he had it all together. He thought his plan to go to the Philistines was so smart and so wise. But he begins to lose his stability. We see first, number one, that he loses his character. He loses his character. We see this in, starting in verse 8. What David says in verse 8 as he goes and he fights these people called the Gergesites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Great names, I know. You can name your kids that, would be great. Uh, but they're, they're common enemies of the Israelites and the Philistines. So the Israelites don't like these guys. The Philistines don't like these guys. And what David does in verse 9 is he goes and he follows the command in Deuteronomy to go and wipe out all the people. He takes them all away. And then verse 10, we see that Akesh comes and he says in verse 10... Whither have ye made a road today? And David said, against the south of Judah, and against the south of the Jeremiah, woo, that's a word, Jeremiahites, and against the south of the Kenites. There we go, we got it, okay? But what's happened is Achish comes up to him, and he says, David, have you been, like, raiding some different people? And it's kind of hard to distinguish here because there's just these weird names. But David responds, and he responds by lying. Because what David did is he went and fought these Gergesites, these Amalekites. He went this way to fight these guys. Achish says, who are you fighting? And David says, oh, I'm just fighting, well, the people south of Judah. That would have been other Israelites. He also says that he's fighting allies of Israel, that he's fighting the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. Those are people that Israel would have liked, that they're on the same side. What David's making Akesh think is that, oh yeah, Akesh, I'm going to find other Israelites. I'm hurting your enemies. What David's doing is find totally different people. And Akesh actually says in verse 12, Akesh believed, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he shall be my servant forever. What's happening is that Akesh thinks, oh, David is going to find other Israelites. I have control of David now forever. He's going to be my servant. He's stuck with me. Because the Israelites aren't going to want him back if he's going and fighting them. But what David's doing is he's lying. We've got to make sure we see that. He's lying. He's actually fighting these people, but he tells King HS that he's fighting these people. And we're kind of like, why are you lying? What was the point of lying? And David's very cunning. He wants to keep King Achish on his side. He wants to make sure he still has a place to live and a place to go. But he also kind of wants to remove Israel's surrounding enemies. And David, David has his own agenda. And we think good and well, he's defending Israel. 
but he's doing it through, through lies. There's no prayer. It's his own plan. There's no command from God to go do this. David is actually being a little too clever for his own good at this moment. And his character is shifting because he's shifting away from God. And when you shift away from God, we can't think that doesn't affect our character. Because we're not focused on the one who is the greatest character, who has the greatest character. And he begins to lie. And his character changes. He loses it. What else does he lose? Well, if we go to chapter 29, we see that he also loses his identity. David is actually now at this point in the narrative, he is following behind the, the Philistine army. And what the intention is, is that he's going to go fight with the other Philistines. And the Philistine leaders are, are watching this. They're all walking together as their army, and they have the Hebrews, the Israelites, behind them. And the Philistine leaders start to think, hey, why is David following us? We don't like this David guy. We're very nervous around him, and kind of rightfully so. They know that's the guy who killed Goliath. They know he's the champion of Israel. They know he's the enemy. And all these leaders start coming together, and they come to King Achish, and they say, Achish, we don't want David here. And they try to persuade him. And, and Achish says, well, no, it's, it's David. He hasn't done anything wrong to me. Let, let's keep him. But the leaders feel uncomfortable, and they want David gone. So look with me at, verses, at verse 6 through 7. Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright. And thy going out and thy coming in with me, and the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me this day. So he's saying some pretty good things. like, David, I really like you. And then he says, you got to go, though. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. These Philistine leaders that I'm with, that could overthrow me, that I want on my good side, they don't want you here. Then verse 7, wherefore now return, go in peace, thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And he says, return, go, go back to where you were, leave in peace though, like let's not get mad at each other. But David's now thinking, return, return where? Where am I supposed to go? I don't have a home to go to. This was my home for a year and four months. His identity was tied to, we think, oh, that's no big deal. Those were Philistines anyways. But now this man has been, David, has been, had his identity tied to this. He was a, a soldier and a leader for a country. Now he's a nobody without any country. We see that he loses his identity. Then keep it up. He's, he's not done losing yet. We see in verse 30, or in chapter 30, and looking at verse, verses 1 through 5, he actually leaves these Philistines and he says, Okay, they want us to go. We'll go back home to Ziklag. At least we have a place there. And he gets there and he finds out, well, let's read it. Let's find out together. Look at verse 3 with me. So David and his men came to the city. They're coming to Ziklag. And behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. So what happened? Well, he came home and everything he had, everything that he built in that year and four months, gone. His wives, gone. His daughters, his sons, his men's daughters, wives, and sons, gone. I mean, imagine like coming home from work and you come home and your house is just gone. Like it's burnt. It's not just gone, it's burning. You can see the remnants of what your life used to be. And then you say, where's my wife? Where's my family? Oh, they've been taken away too. There's kind of some, some heartache that comes with that. 
And then we see he's not done losing yet. Look at verse 6 with me. Just the first half right now. We see verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, rightfully so, as we all would be. For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. His people, his 600 men. So, so he lost his family. Man, at least he had his 600 men. But now they're turning to David and saying, we want to stone you. And we're, we're done with you, David. We're done with this, this life that you're leading us down. We're greatly distressed just as you. We're sad and we're blaming you, David. You're the one, and it's kind of David's fault in a little bit, because he's been operating outside of what God wants. And when you operate outside of what God wants for you, and you're his child, it hurts more than just you. Sometimes people think they can go down this, this wrong path, and they can go into sin just for a little bit, that they can go into temptation for just a little bit, and no one will know, no one else will be affected. That's a lie from the devil. Others will be affected. It does, it changes you. You know, remember that pit he was in, verse 1 that we talked about, the pit of misery? And what David did to try to get out of it is he went to the Philistines. And now he's sunk deeper and deeper into that pit. He's lost his family. He lost his men. He lost his home. He lost his identity. He lost his character. He's dug that hole further and further and further till he nearly lost everything. Make no mistake, your, your, your choice to live for God is, is the most amazing thing ever. But we have this choice to live for him. If we're going to be after him, if we're going to go follow him, if we're going to trust him no matter where we are, if we're in a pit or if the highest highs, you have a choice to live for God. It's, it's not a game. It's not something that we just do when we feel like it. It's something we just do when we come to church. You know, people, people try to rationalize it and they try to go their own way because that seems like the, the wisest option. That's actually wrong. It seems like the option that brings them the most joy and satisfaction. And we think, what's a couple months of carnality compared to a lifetime of obedience? I'll, I'll, get, I'll be obedient later on. Let me do me right now. I, I can do it later. I can do my own way. I can do my own way through college. I can do my own way through high school. I can do my own way through this job. I can do my own way through this week. Just this week. Let me, this, just this stressful day, let me give in just a little bit. And what that is, it's a slippery slope where scars are formed, where pain happens. And what we see as the stages, he was de- in these depressing circumstances, he used that to justify his departure from God's plan, and now everything's being destroyed. And we're like, oh, Great. This is really encouraging. That's why we got to read the rest of verse 6. We see the final point, a renewed dependence on God. Now, I don't know if you remember, Pastor Corey gave an awesome message where he had these pillars up here. And it was symbolizing how he had these pillars, but he lost all, but he was still able to stand. How? Well, we come to verse 6, the very end of it, that we didn't read, but we need to. Verse 6. But David, very end of it, but David encouraged himself the Lord, his God. Like, it, it changes dramatically. Like, you don't see him doing that <laughs> at, at chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 29. And you don't see him doing it from the start of chapter 30, but he finally changes. Like, David, you're getting it. And something different occurs. He encouraged himself. It's David, the one who was in the pit. He had encouraged himself. And what that means is he strengthened, that he stood firm, that he didn't we- waver or leave God. And then what's cool is it says, in the Lord, capital letters. This isn't just some random guy who's going, this isn't the Philistine God. This is Yahweh, the God above all. And then it says, his God. So it's not just the Lord above all, it's David's personal God, his personal relationship with the God 
above all. And what we see is when David starts being faithful, things start to change. Doesn't mean he doesn't have consequences. Doesn't mean that everything just magically gets better. It means that he has hope, he has strength. You know, when, when we are faithful, we will see God take us from the pit of misery and plant us on the rock of glory. And we see that he helps us. He, he gives us an escape from that pit. And what's awesome is there's, there's a little caveat to that. Even when we are faithful or faithless, God is faithful. And you know, we, we, if we read this, it's very easy to scold David and be like, David, you're not being perfect. You're not doing this right, David. Come on, man. Why are you not praying to God? You know it's the easy fix. But then I think to myself, and I see myself not doing that because I'm not perfect, and I'm not always faithful, and I definitely don't have it all together. But what's encouraging to me is that neither do the characters of the Bible. The, David is not a perfect guy. And David's also not the hero of the series. God is. God is the one who's working. It is, God is the one that gives hope. And the greater hope that we have, that David only got to see just a little promises of glimpses of, we have the hope of Christ who went and died on a cross for our sins so that we can have identity in him, not our circumstances, that we can have assurance in him, not our circumstances, that we can have confidence in his grace and not our circumstances, that we can have freedom from these pits by his precious blood. Now going back to the, to the story of uh, Pilgrim, Christian, who's, who's going to the cross. He wants this burden to be released. And he falls into the slow of despond. And we didn't end the story there. We, it seems like, as you're reading, like, how is he going to get out of this? He, the more he struggles, the deeper he gets. Then we have this guy that comes and helps. And what Bunyan's intention is, this guy who comes in and helps grab, grab a Christian out of the pit. It's the Holy Spirit. Someone that comes that is greater than him but loves him so much and comes and says, I'm going to grab you out and help you and give you strength when you don't have it and give you joy when you don't have it and help you as you get to go forward. The Lord helped him out of the pit of despair. You know, I don't know where you are, but I do know these stages affect you. If, if you're unsaved tonight, and what, what I mean by that is someone who has not believed in Christ, who ha- might have all that head knowledge, who might have grown up in church, who might have checked all the boxes. No, I'm, I'm saying a person who has not believed in Christ and called upon his name. You know, the pit you have is, is the pit of hell. And you're like, Miles, that's not culturally appropriate to say. I don't care. If you're unsaved and you haven't believed in Christ, that's where you're heading. That's the biggest pit of all. But we see that Christ came and said, I can deliver you from that. All you have to do is believe. And that's good news, because you can believe on Christ who is calling you to repent now. Okay, so that's number one. That's how these stages affect you. Number two is, is if you're a person who is, who is wayward right now. You, you had a time where you truly believed and called upon Christ, but it just doesn't seem to be working right now. And life just seems really hard. And you, you've gone your own way for fulfillment. And I ask you, when you go your own way for fulfillment... Has it left you any better? Is everything good right now? Is everything going exactly the way you planned it? Because that's what we rationalize with ourselves when we're, we're trying, to be, trying to go to our sin. We're like, but this is the better option. But we find that it's not the better option. And we see that Christ is better. And he's not better. He's the best. And he, it, and he works and he changes. And the father is waiting for his child to come home. You know, something else I was thinking is that some of you might be relatives of someone who is wayward. And there's this question in your mind, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad question, but it's like, are they saved or are they unsaved? 
And, you know, I can't answer that. That's not what I'm here to do. What I can say is that you, if you know someone who is wayward, who is living in sin, I can say that God cares. And think about that. Like, he cares. He doesn't just give those little simple things like, oh, I, I care for you. That must be hard. No, he cares so much that when that person goes wayward and that person sins, it hurts him even more than it hurts you because he loves them. And what I want to say to you, and it's not easy, but don't give up on God working because he hasn't given up on them. Keep praying, keep surrendering, keep loving, and they notice that. And then, finally, if you're growing in Christ and you're like, man, I fully surrendered. Like, you're kind of getting me down in the dumps because I don't want to go into a pit. I'm, things are, I'm actually living for Christ. I'm not perfect, but by God's grace, I'm making it through. Praise the Lord. And don't be scared. Sometimes we, we, when we grow in Christ, our fear is that we get so scared we don't want it to go away. And then we freak ourselves out and get really anxious. And we get scared because, to be honest with you, pits of misery and hard times come. What we see in James is that you can count it all joy because you're not alone. When you're growing in Christ, you see that he's right there with you, guiding you, holding your hand through it all. You have all you need. You have a big God who takes care of you. You know, David was human. And his mess-ups are not done. We're going to keep going through this, and you're going to see, David, stop doing that. David, don't do that. David, you did it, and now you're failing again. And now you're back to where you started. But God never abandons him, and God never abandons us. What's interesting is David always comes back. doesn't mean there wasn't consequences. doesn't mean someone had to kick him in the rear and get him to come back. But he came back because he knew his Lord was true. And he communicates these, these precious words in Psalms. Wrap it out, I want us to look at this psalm that David says. And he actually says this while he's running from Saul. It's before this, this event. But David needed to go back to the own words he wrote. And it says in Psalm 59, 16 through 17, But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense the God of my mercy. Do this with me if you won't mind. It will be good for you. I want you to read verse 17 with me together. Okay, ready? And go. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense and the God of my mercy. That's a promise you can say. That's what you can say today. I pray that that encourages you, that he is your defense. He is your refuge. If you will, bow your heads with me as you go into a time of invitation.